and welcome to the To Mom podcast. My name is Valerie Propsfeld. Please join me as we encourage mothers to live their verb while also practicing self-grace. The goal of this podcast is to promote love as an action and live life more authentically. Just think about it. In five generations from now, you will have approximately 30 descendants and the number keeps getting larger and larger. We have more power as moms than we realize. Motherhood, in my opinion, is the most important job in the world. Hi moms, thanks for joining. I have an amazing guest lined up for us today, Sally Fox. She is the author of Meeting the Muse After Midlife, a memoir about finding hope and meaning in the second half of life, particularly through creative expression. Sally is also a coach, speaker, and has a long-running blog and podcast. I am thrilled to have her on the show. First, the mission of To Mom is to Love is to support, encourage, and empower each other as imperfect moms to love as a verb. Join us, subscribe, share, and follow. Welcome to our community. I am so glad Sally accepted my request to be a guest on the podcast with me today. She and I met through our Yale Alumni Writing Group, and every sentence of Sally's writing is so engaging and so beautiful. Her target audience is for women after age 50, but I think it's really applicable to any age, in your 40s, even your 30s, everything she writes, I very much related to. It was a pleasure reading it, and I'm so thrilled to have her. Sally, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, the pleasure's mine. What an intro. Thank you so much. I'm excited for our conversation. Well, Sally, tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, that's a big question. Uh, You know, it's kind of which day are we talking? Um, Today, I am the, um, let's see, I'm more of the stay-at-home artist. But if you'd caught me a couple of days ago, I might have been a writer and I'm also an equestrian. And so I'm always out there having to muck the stalls. And I'm a, more than anything else, I'm a seeker. So part of my, my, what I seem to do in life is ask questions, particularly ones that help me try and figure out what's going on around here and how can we live more joyfully with a sense of meaning and purpose and deep connection to the world. That's, that's pretty much who I am. Mm. That sums up so much. I mean, I feel like you answered that question just beautifully. I mean, I feel like it changes every day for me too. Like I'm a mom a lot of the times dealing with chaotic kids, young kids all around, but I also am, you know, a writer, I do podcasting and I'm a a cook and cleaning and a a taxi driver. (laughs) Depends on the day. (laughs) Yeah, we are. We are, you know, and sometimes in our careers, people want to make us into a, uh, 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 you know, are you a, are, are you a manager? Are you um, a salesperson? Are you an executive? Are you a coach? Are you, you know, it's like you, you need the right label. And sometimes when you're pitching yourself, that label can be really useful, but you know that the labels never, never begin to say who we are. And I think that's so true for moms because a mom is the biggest enterprise there could be you know motherhood is 
And and it's so multifaceted and it goes along with all these other things and other roles and hats that, that you know we wear. So um anyone who is a mother is default having multiple roles, multiple labels, and a very complex life. Huh. Yeah. And I've said before where I feel like when my first was born, I filled out the birth certificate for her. And I also had an imaginary birth certificate for myself of like, now I'm mother. And it's such a beautiful name, but it's also, it doesn't take away my original name. Like I'm still Valerie and finding my identity. And that's for everyone, like finding who we are. And it's such a a journey. I love on your website, Sally, you have like a a road that's not linear, like where it's like it, it, there's ups and downs and curves. And I think that really beautifully symbolizes life and how it's not what we expect it's going to be and trying to enjoy the fun along the way. When I was writing the book, um, I think the two most powerful words that came to me were both and. It, I came out of the world of polarity thinking that I was a part of, but it, it's not unique to them. It's, it's the world of paradox and it's the world of complexity. And so, yes, you know, you, you, you have one identity and you have another, you know, life isn't one thing or another. And when I was at Yale, I was pretty naive. I was in the business school there in the management program. And I somehow thought that good people who did things right would would follow a kind of linear path towards success. I don't know why I got that notion, but I did have that notion, you know, like a, a little graph that keeps going up in the right direction. But obviously, as you write about my life, it, it's never been like that. It's got more but curves and spirals and ups and downs. Mm-hmm. And so the old way I would hold it is that those downs made me less. I wasn't successful, you know. But when you hold it as a whole life, you go, no, 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 no. It's both and. We have to have it all. We're constantly evolving. We're on a journey. And that notion of a successful life going up at a straight angle is, is a fiction. Absolutely. It's a, go- it's a facade. It's like. It's a facade. Yeah. 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 It's that control. We think we can control that journey and we just can't. I we can't. Yeah. I love that, Sally. And Sally, I want to ask you, um, what are some myths about aging that shape how we see ourselves? I know that's a big theme in your book. And, you know, as we get older, we all, you know, these are really important things that we have to start facing. Well, for me, the biggest myth and the the, the dominant story that I grew up with was retirement. Mm-hmm. And that story was one like work hard, save some money, do your best. And then at a certain point, you climb up this mountain, you get to age 65 and you kind of jump off and you have, hopefully you have a good parachute, but nobody says what you're jumping off into. And even that image of climbing up and jumping off is kind of crazy. Um, so when I was in fi- around 50, which was really the beginning of, of the book, I began to say that that story just doesn't cut it. Because whether or not you're going to leave a job, 
you're not going to retire. You're, you're still going to be engaged with life, or I hope you're going to be engaged with life. So why do we cling to a word that means going away from or retreating mm. at a very time of your life when you want to be expanding? So for me, older age, you know, post 50 or 60 is about expansion. Retirement's the wrong word for that. Mm. Now, some people could take another myth which was perpetrated oh, in the 60s is leisure living. Mm. You know, because before the 60s, they didn't have communities of people who got older together and went off to, you know, the Sun Belt to, to live on mass. It, 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 it didn't even show up as a concept. That concept was constructed and it was constructed by a developer who saw a way to make a lot of money. And he did by creating leisure living leisure living villages where people could kind of go off into the sunset. Mm. Okay. So on the surface, leisure living sounds pretty good. You know, you got the boat and the glass of wine and all is good in the world. And it's never, I mean, we're all human. We're all human and you have kids and your kids are going to have kids and all of them are going to have their own problems. And some of them are going to come back and haunt you and you're going to have a body that ages and you're going to have you know, dilemmas in your own relationship in life. It is never this place in the sky called happy, happy sun city leisure living. Mom, I can have a turkey. Okay, in a few minutes. Okay. okay. Sorry about that. You know this, you know it so well because, you know, you have a, a dream vision of what it's like to be a mother and then your child comes and interrupts you in the middle of the podcast. <laughs> you go, that was not in the plan. And yet, we roll with it. And I think getting older is also about learning to roll with life as it is, mm-hmm. as opposed to the, the made up myths. And um, the other third, the third myth, and I'll just mean it, is that um, old age is about deteriorating, which in truth it is if you get to live a long life and you're only talking about the body. Mm. But I didn't like that myth either. Because it feels like, you know, why did God put us on this planet to spend 30 of the last years of our lives um, declining to, and, you know, and the, the only thing we could look forward to is dying. Now, that just doesn't make any sense. So yeah. I said, what, what is it in us that actually grows, even if our body declines? And that was really at the heart of the book. What, where do we expand? Where do we grow? Mm even acknowledging that our bodies will change. Yeah. I love that. That's so beautiful. And I think so eloquently put where, and I, and that's amazing. I didn't know that that whole kind of retirement, it, it was just this advertising thing, like where it's like, here is this leisure living. And what, what do you do once you ride off into the sunset? And I noticed in your book, you talk about gardening and comparing this life to plants and flowers and, you know, how they grow and how you're pruning them and how like their seasons. And I think that's all just so beautiful and embracing imperfection. So my three-year-old just came up to us and was like, I want a cookie. And so it's like, let's just embrace that. Let's embrace what life comes at you, you know, and that's, it's so much we can't control it. And I love how you're kind of 
making your own narrative and saying, this is not what's for me and there's more to life. Yeah. And I think the, the, one of the few favors that the pandemic did for us is it took us off our high horse of thinking things would be the way we wanted them to be. And it was kind of nice to begin to see inside of people's houses and that were sometimes messy when people were on zoom calls (laughs) or the dog would walk in in the wrong moment or the kids would interrupt. And I got used to that, you know, it was so imperfect and wonderful in its imperfection. And I think since then, it's kind of like when I do a podcast, you know, when I started my podcast six years ago or seven or whatever, whenever I did, it was like, it all had to be perfect. You know, if the dog parked, I was ruined, you know, and now it's like, eh, you know, as long as it's not too bad, it's probably fine. And people aren't, aren't expecting perfection for most of what we do. Absolutely. And that reminds me of like what I say a lot of, I studied for motherhood. Like I wanted to get an A plus on the exam of motherhood. Um, I had a childhood that, you know, I I wanted to do something different. I wanted to be different in so many ways. And here's what I'm going to do. I have this blueprint as to how I'm going to be a mom. And within 10 minutes of my first being born, she was taken to the NICU. And it's like, okay, well, I lost that illusion of control and I didn't plan for that. And how do I embrace that? And I just kept, you know, over those couple of first couple of years, like I would realize that I wasn't perfect. Like I would yell, I'd get frustrated. When I looked up mother in the dictionary, it says to rise, to give birth or to give rise, to um, protect. And all of that comes from love. And when I think about love and that being the only thing I can control. I mean, that truly is, I feel like at the end of the day, all I can do is how can I move forward in this moment with love? Well, I think we're on the same plane with that Mm. because in a sense, that's where that's the, the alpha and omega, that's where it starts. That's where it ends. That's where if you can anchor your journey in your love and your devotion to what you care about, then you'll find a way. And without love, the obstacles that you face, whether it is as a mom or in an aging body, can be pretty darn overwhelming. Mm-hmm. So part of our job is like to keep finding what is it that we need to let go of that gets in the way, and how can we keep returning to remembering what's always there? Absolutely. You know, Sally, you talk so much about your experiences after age 50, like traveling to Japan, um, purchasing property on this beautiful island. Can you talk with us more about that? I mean, I thought I found all of that so fascinating and how you grew along the way. Um, well, let me just do a backstory. Well, one, as I said, I did I didn't really have a plan for getting older. Yeah. A lot of Japan, I mean, my big epiphany that people can read about, please leave meeting, if people read Meeting the Muse after midlife, as I hope they will, there was a a moment in Japan where I really felt like my life was on the line and I needed to find out what would give me sustainable joy Mm. that wasn't dependent on the circumstances and would also wean me away from my addiction in a certain sense, to um, having my life run by my achievements. You know, I I was traveling back from Japan and I just realized I am 
tired of running like a hamster. I'm on an, I'm crazed by productivity. I, I, I love achievement. Um, but there's more to life. I know there's more and it's up to me to find it. And, and so my quest turned into one, um, that led me to a path of becoming more creative and expressing myself more creatively. That was, that was a big deal for me. What was your question again? Because I'm remembering that moment when I made that, when I had that epiphany, but I kind of forgot your question. So oh, that's okay. What, yeah. <laughs> I always find it so interesting just to learn about different places people have been and how I, and I absolutely agree. All of our listeners need to check out Sally's book because just the way you write about Japan, what you experienced and pronounce the island that you purchased property we usually, on. Yeah. We usually call it Vashon. 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 Yeah. Yeah. And we went to the island um, not long after I had come back from Japan. And part of the epiphany in Japan was I was blown away by the beauty of the gardens. Mm. And so here, what I did when I moved from Seattle to Vashon is I traded a house that was bigger and more convenient to a lot of cultural things for a property where I was surrounded by big madrona trees and douglas fir trees and i had land and i could garden so that was the trade-off and it felt like that i was really ready for it i needed to have a life that was a little bit more anchored on the earth a little quieter and the garden opened up this incredible opportunity for creativity i love that and I know at the end of the book, you talk about the concept of, um, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, but wabi-sabi, is that how you pronounce it? Um, yeah. I, I That it's like, was so timely for me to read because I, I just started um, learning about that. I, um, you know, I talked with my counselor and recently she had mentioned that to me of embracing imperfection. And there's an art form in Japan that essentially like highlights imperfection and creates golds in the cracks. And this is all part of this concept. A part of the thing I loved about the, the, the traditional arts, I love all of Japan, but I love the, really love the traditional arts is that they're not like, like a, a Japanese tea bowl, not necessarily cracked, um, but it's, um, it's, it's imperfect. It's got variation. It's, it's often a little bit raw. You know, and it's absolutely gorgeous, but it's not all perfect and polished. And and in the Japanese homes, the traditional homes, you'll have beams, but the beams won't all be perfect. There'll be some some irregularities. And if there isn't an irregularity, they'll add one. You know, so you're you're always embracing that it's like it's like embracing life because that's what life is. And when I do like an, uh, a flower arrangement, I keep on a flower arrangement. I do, you do a lot of pruning, but sometimes you don't have to prune off every dead leaf. Sometimes that's actually what you want to leave. So you may leave a leaf that's not perfect. Mm. It doesn't hurt the arrangement. In fact, it, it, it's rich. So when you, when you embrace life in its fullness, it just becomes richer. And in some ways, easier to live because we don't have to push ourselves to achieve what we can't, which is some ideal of being perfect. Perfection is so overrated. 
Well, and it's overrated and it's a myth. It's impossible. Yeah. It's not. I mean, I guess in some things in sort of technical or mathematical world, you can have exactness. Mm -hmm. Um, But nothing in the organic world is completely exact. It reminds me of with the fall recently. um, I'll sometimes talk about you know, how beautiful the colors of the leaves are, that change and the yellows and the oranges in particular. Like, I think it's so fascinating that those are in the leaves all along. Like those colors are in the tree, but in the summertime, it's masked by chlorophyll and that green is you know being produced by sunlight. But when darkness, when there's darker days and decreased sunlight, that's when the inner colors start to reveal themselves and it it's so beautiful and i think that's just such a great visualization for me to kind of embrace that of it's part of life and that's and that is okay it is okay and i i didn't know that about leaves i i love fall leaves mm. but i didn't know that uh, but i think part of part of the artist's journey and part of the aging journey and really the life journey is to know that there'll be darkness but you can, um, but to try and also approach it mindfully, which means when it comes, like when fall comes, you welcome it. Yeah. You know, it changes things, but you welcome it. And in our lives, when the darkness comes in to know, I call it like having an emergency kit for what to deal with when it gets too dark. Mm. And who do you call upon and what practices do you have? And how can you pull yourself back if you if you take in a little bit too much darkness? And given the world that we're living in right now, I actually think that's an important question. Like, how will you pull yourself, you know, pull yourself out of the pothole mm. if you happen to stumble? Because it can be hard out there. Sally, you mentioned that it's some me in your book you call friends a certain type of of word when there's dark moments like what's the wording you use i liked it like the the foul weather friends i think is what you You said it's foul weather friends (laughs) i love that and i actually i stole that phrase uh from two folk singers that i remember from the 60s Mm. who who were close friends of pete seegers but because pete had gotten very famous they didn't see him but they always knew that if they really needed him, he would be there. Mm. And I think it's great to look at your life and just to say, if things get really bad, you know, like a sudden accident, a diagnosis, losing somebody you love, losing a pet, you know, things that are really hard. Who are the people who are just going to say, I'm here for you? I'm not judging you. I'm not making it all better for you. I'm, I'm witnessing. I'm here. I'm on your side. Those people are golden. And it's kind of, it comforts me to identify a few of them and know who I could call. It reminds me of thunderstorms and when there's damage, you know, for example, a tornado or like a really severe storm, there's all this external damage and communities come together. But sometimes when we have internal thunderstorms, it's similar and I think sometimes we like tend to close ourselves off and not want to reach out for support, but that's just the same as if there's an external damage. Like we need that community. We need that. And um, so I think that is so important to identify 
those people in our lives. Now, Sally, that reminds me of a question I wanted to ask you about grief and your message about grief is just so vulnerable and also so healing with your words. And how can we create our own way through grief? Um, well, the first is to just accept us, accept ourselves, however we come with it. You know, there's not one way to travel through grief. And even if we have trouble and we want to suppress all our grief, which I don't recommend, but even there we need to have compassion because grief is hard and we all have a way through it and there's not just one way. Then once you accept that and, and you're just really tender and good to yourself, no matter how it shows up, then you can start noticing things like the fact that grief does not have a timeline. It does not have an agenda. You, you may go through stages of grief or you may completely surprise yourself. It's like grief is like the coach who has the upper hand. With, when grief's in town, it, it runs the show. And when you can accept that and know that there's no formula for getting through it, it also helps. Because again, I'm going back to that compassion. Compassion for yourself, compassion. And, and, and when you're compassionate for yourself, you're like the person who can look out and see how many other people are grieving. I think it's like the parable of the mustard. Is it was it the mustard seed or where where the the woman was sent out to find the oh. household that hadn't accepted hadn't experienced deep loss? Yes, she was so upset about losing her child, and she couldn't find that household. And I think that's the way our world is today. If you show, if if you find a household that hasn't some grief somewhere, I. I would call them living in fantasy, you know, because if you don't even have personal grief, if you haven't had to go through personal loss, read the news. Yeah. It's all, it's all out there. And I think it's a skill that we're going to need to increasingly develop is how do we deal with grief that we didn't, for things that we never asked for, never wanted and break our heart. Yeah. I, I saw recently um, grief is kind of similar to love in that it's almost like love that you can't give anymore. Like if it's like the loss of a loved one, like there's all this love that you want to give, but they're just, you don't know where they are now. Yeah. And I think grief is also often really connected with love that you keep on loving. And because you love, you have grief. Mm. You know, if you didn't love, you wouldn't worry about it. And I think from my own experience, because I've, I have lost nine friends since May and that's a lot. Sorry um, to hear that. Thank you. Um, you, you, the love doesn't go away. Yeah. You, you, you keep loving you, you, you know, they're not on this plane. You'll never see them again. Doesn't mean that you can't send them love. You don't think about them. You know, they're, they're still, they're still with you. So I think that I think that grief and love aren't, you know, they, they go right together. I'm behind um, my cabinet that has some crystals in there. And that's from my grandma. She always loved crystals. And um, 
so there, a lot of them are hers and it's just so special to me. So those like little reminders, and sometimes I'll even like take one out and hold it. And I know grandma's mm. there. So there, our loved ones are always there. We just can't, it almost makes me think of back in chemistry um, class, like the table of elements and like there's solid, solid, but solid liquid and gas. And, you know, there's just, there's still, you know, like maybe we're not necessarily here in solid, but you know, there's, there's other ways we're here, you know, if it's not yeah. that. Um, so Sally, there was a chapter in your book that I really identified with, and it, it was a conversation which it sounded like was with your inner child and talking with her about, um, I think it was with dance and your feelings associated with that. And I thought that was so beautiful. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Um, well, I think many of us, I, I won't say all of us, but some of us, you know, carry stories from our past that are difficult. Mm. And sometimes they feel shameful. They feel humiliating. They're the kind of story that you don't really want to share. Yeah. You know, you kind of hold it out like, boy, you know, people, if people knew this about me, they, I would lose all credibility and be completely dorky and nobody would ever love me again or whatever. And um, the thing that I found is that when we share our stories, even those stories that have some shame and humiliation in it, what we usually do is just connect to a, a bigger human element because almost everybody carries some kind of story. Mm. So I was doing a, a workshop with this wonderful organization called StoryBridge, which invites people to share stories with each other. And then go on and create a play out of those stories. It's a really magical process. But the, the, the epiphany for me, the big moment was when I just sat there and I thought, I have this story that I've never told anybody because it feels so humiliating, but maybe in the safety of this space, I could tell it because it was related to the topic of the morning. So I was working with an older man. I think he was probably in his early 80s. I love him dearly. And I just said, I'm safe here. So I told what it was like to be rejected at dancing school. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I say it to you like this, it's like rejected at dancing school. I bet you a lot of us have felt that. And if not at dancing school, something comparable where we weren't picked. Mm -hmm. But it didn't live like that. It lived like the end of the world in me. It lived like. Um, a wound that was still alive. And I just watched to see how in telling the story and telling it in front of people and performing it even, it, it lifted, it lifted. It became a thing rather than a prison. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and then the part that you referred to about the going back was... So I had this magnificent experience with StoryBridge where I got the story out for the first time. But it didn't feel quite complete. Mm. And so I felt like I needed to go back to dancing school and have a little conversation with that little girl who had been so wounded. And I did. And I can tell you that in editing the book, because I've edited it multiple, multiple times, I never just cold edited it. I was, I always, Editing that scene, I always went back to be with her. It was kind of like, it was a very precious scene to me. And I can, I can even feel the tears now that came 
in just embracing that poor, dear, beautiful, humiliated little girl mm. and letting her know that she was loved and taking her away to where she felt safe and wanted. Um, story can do that for us. And so um, that's one of the real powerful things about using creative arts and expressive arts like like storytelling. It, um, they can be really healing, whether or not you set out to have them be healing. They can be healing anyway. I love that. I mean, that is so powerful. And I, I, even like from the from the brain level, it seems like story is like we're just wired for stories. And I've heard you know, there's studies out there now that say like our heart rates even synchronize when we're hearing the same story. And that's just so, yeah. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. Story is super powerful. And, and because, you know, I was a practicing story coach, still am in a certain way right now. I also know this story, a great story is a living thing. Mm -hmm. So it's not like, I got a story and I, you know, here's my sales story and I tell everybody the same story. It's kind of gotten this little slick veneer over it or um, a real story is tender mm. and it changes and it changes in the telling and it changes with the audience and it's alive. And I think that's part of the healing is allowing our stories to be alive so that they can change so that you may end up editing your story mm. in ways that you didn't expect. And, and, and so you can also look at what's coming next and realize that you have the power to shape the story of the future. The story isn't just about describing the past. So in that way, story is really dynamic. It's beautiful. I think that's incredible that you found such a creative expression. I know in your book, you talk about drawing, dancing, music and was there another one too like gardening and anything else that you've been doing recently uh not so recently but my early journey was through um ikebana flower arranging right. and into imp improv theater um performing mm -hmm. and and i even did a little bit of clowning oh wow not successfully <laughs> but i did i did it yeah <laughs> and so then Drawing is part of it, and so is uh, playing with paint. Mm, I love that. Yeah. I really related on a personal level to your uh, musical stories and your piano stories, um, you know, that you played the piano back in the day, and you took it up again. It, uh, it sounded like later in life. Is that right? Yeah, very later in life. Yeah, and, and I think piano for me has been... It's challenging. It's one of those true both ands because when I read a piece of Beethoven, there are notes and there are right notes and wrong notes. You know, it's not like play any note you want and call it Beethoven. No, there are notes on the page you're supposed to play. And invariably when I play, I will miss some of them. And that is really hard, you know, and yeah. uh, practice and, and hard. <laughs> so so the thing is that when you're you're just focused and you see how many wrong notes you keep making, the the spark, the life, the love that you talked about can start leeching away, and you become kind of like a automatic practicer, beating yourself up, trying to get it right. So how do you stay in love with what you're doing and pursue those right notes, but from a space that's gentler to yourself 
and keeps you in love, keeps the spark alive that, that got you started in the first place. And I don't have a formula that, for that. It, it's still really hard to make wrong notes. You know, I hear them, I go, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and yet I, I know now that I have to keep coming back either to silence, to a moment of quiet, or to um, just saying, let's remember why we're in it. We're in it because we love music. Yeah. And, and it can be so beautiful. And even when it's not perfect, it fills our hearts. So I have to, I have to keep remembering, remembering that. I'm a music performance major in college. And um, wow. so I, yeah, and I had a bunch of recitals, but my, my senior recital, gosh, I practiced for it so much and it had to be perfect. And I remember I was so obsessed with like, this needs to be perfect. I had this like 10 page piece that I did not know how to put on the stage. I know for piano players, typically you don't have the music in front of you. And I think that was the advantage of the flute, the flute. I was able to still have my music there. And, but I was like, Oh, I'm so scared that I don't know how all these pages are going to fit. I had like three music stands on stage and the day before the performance, I taped it too much. And it, I didn't realize it stuck to one of the other pages. So like this piece that I practiced for like 18 months, um, when I went to flip my piano, my piano accompanist kept playing and I couldn't like, I needed to flip the page. And so she just did a wonderful job of just kept, you know, like repeating the same measure over and over again until I got the page unstuck. And I was so mortified I just kept playing. I just kept doing it. But I remember at the end of it, I was like, Oh my gosh, everyone noticed that. And no one did. <laughs> and it was just like this. Wow. Like, they're like, oh, I didn't notice Amazing. that at all. And I think that's so funny with life where we're Amazing. Yeah. And it's like we beat ourselves up so much sometimes. And it's like, you know, we're so much our own worst critic. <laughs> now, Sally, as we wrap up here, I want to give you an opportunity to tell our listeners about like where they can find you, um, where they can get your book and also, I want to see if you can leave us with one piece of advice you have for our listeners in the second half of life. Wow. Well, finding me is easy. I'm at www.engagingpresence.com. Or you can, and my blog, I really invite everybody to sign up for my blog because I do a lot of reflecting every week and and people really like the blog. So it, it's engagingpresence.com blog. And then you'll also see a reference to the book, Meeting the Muse After Midlife, A Journey to Meaning, Creativity, and Joy. So that's all there on my website. And there may be people who are wanting to plan a transition into the second half of life or are looking at retirement or just know that there's more. And they want to plot a path toward that more or or look at their life and shape it more creatively. Because I, I say that we're designers of our life. Our biggest creative accomplishment might be our days. Mm-hmm. And so I, I am a, a, I'm coaching folks who want to reinvent their lives in that way. And you can find out about that on the website as well. That's awesome, Sally. I am going to put all that information on the show notes so our listeners can check you out and check out all those amazing resources. I think that's incredible. And then the one piece of advice, and I'll say this for people who are more 
more in your generation than than mine, even though it is about aging, is just saying there's going to come a point where the horizon, you're closer to the end horizon than you are from the start. And that at that moment, you start to really ask the question, what has heart and meaning for me? Who am I and, and why am I here? And what brings me joy? And those are kind of no shit questions because you know that you could lose it all in a moment. All I can say is don't wait. You may be 30, you may be 35, you may be 40, you may be edging towards the second half of life. You don't have to wait. You can look at your life and say, where's my spark? Where am I being called? How is the muse talking to me today? And act on it at whatever age you are. It's powerful. Thank you so much, Sally. You're so welcome. I am so happy to have had this time with you. Me too. I just love everything you say and everything you write just makes me like feel like I'm getting a hug from the inside. (laughs) Well, that is the best compliment you could pay me. I I really appreciate that. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Sally. And I hope all of you listeners out there get a chance to check out Sally's book, her blog, her podcast, everything she has to offer and her coaching services. And thank you so much again, Sally. I hope everyone has a wonderful day.